Welcome to the first episode of Woodhouse Keeping, the podcast that discusses all the books of the humorous author P.G. Woodhouse in chronological order. My name's Ian Coburn, and today I'm joined by Julia Edgar to look at his first book, The Pot Hunters, from 1902, a public school novel. Spoilers will abound. Can I ask you, Julia, when you first became aware of P.G. Woodhouse? Yes, actually, it was... Oh, sometime around eight or nine when I received um, a book for Christmas or my birthday, some kind of occasion, probably Christmas. And my mom said, you know what? You've got to read this. You'll love it. And she was right. What is your relationship with P.G. Woodhouse generally? Well, I don't know him personally. No. However, uh, but this is something that I gave some thought to when you invited me to do this podcast and talk about one of my very favorites of his, which is, of course, The Pot Hunters, which we'll be talking about today. And I would say that my relationship with Woodhouse as an author in terms of entertainment and education was that a Woodhouse novel is a safe space to go if you want to be sure of a laugh. And you can be sure also that you will be able to take on a perspective where you're not taking things too seriously. It's like a constant reminder, both Mm. the rhetoric he uses, his comic stylings, the very nature of the plot, uh, what he includes about um, how he describes a certain society or culture at that time and what he leaves out. You can rely on him. You can rely on him to be, to entertain you, uh, again, to provide a fantastic laugh. And again and again, like the way he sets up jokes, the way he sets up comedic situations, gags, it just doesn't, it doesn't fail. So I find that I can go back to his books and reread them. Anytime I want to be reminded that life is not serious. <laughs> um, and actually, and literally laugh out loud. You know, life at Blandings is <clears throat> one that does make me laugh a lot. I've got a compendium. So I would say that, it does exemplify my relationship with Woodhouse is that I trust him. I trust him to help me, entertain me, <laughs> and he's always there. The Pot Hunters, you were the first person I thought of when I thought about who I could get to talk about this because when I stayed at your apartment when we were both much younger, you had it on your bookshelf, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the volume with the first ah! three books. Yes, this is the one. This is the one. And I love it. I love this edition, too. It's always on my shelf. <laughs> yes. I return to it. We're referring to the 1985 Penguin Omnibus edition, The Pot Hunters and Other School Stories, which also includes A Prefect's Uncle and Tales of St. Austin's. Yeah, and I was impressed that you had it and surprised because none of the books in it are well known or thought of as being at his finest. And I remember asking you what you thought of it. And you said, yeah, it's great. And I, don't, I hadn't read any of those books at that point. I'd read a, a couple of his school novels, but yeah, you were ahead of me on that one. What I thought I would do is, because this is the first episode, I'd go through a brief biography of his early life before we start. Pelham Grenville Woodhouse, known to his friends as Simply Plum, was born in 1881 in Guildford, England, to Ernest and Eleanor Woodhouse. 
His father was a magistrate in Hong Kong. After spending his first two years in Hong Kong, the climate was deemed harmful to the poor health of his eldest brother, Peverell, and he was sent with both his elder brothers to be raised in England by a nurse, separated from their parents. Between the ages of three and fourteen, he saw his parents for roughly six months in total. The young Woodhouse started writing at age five. What I was doing before that, I don't remember. (laughs) Just loafing, I expect. He was also a voracious reader, and he said he had read Pope's translation of the Iliad by age six. He was initially earmarked for the Navy and was sent to a school geared to producing naval officers. His brother Armin was the one who had been earmarked for an academic career and had been sent to Dulwich College in the suburbs of South London. Plum went to visit Armin there, fell in love with the place and asked to be sent there as well, to which his parents acquiesced. So he went there from the age of 12 and spent what he called six years of unbroken bliss there. Yes, I heard that. He got into the school team in both cricket and rugby football and was a keen boxer and edited the school magazine. When he was 14, his father retired and his parents returned to England. Plum said he got on well with his father but found his mother a very formidable character. They lived first in Dulwich but then moved to Shropshire, which Woodhouse called an earthly paradise and incidentally, it's the county I'm from. Woodhouse got a scholarship to Oxford University where Armin had gone but then his father dropped the bombshell that he couldn't afford to send Plum to a university as well. Instead, when he left school in 1900, he got a job in a bank in London, the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank. Um, His parents' idea was he would eventually follow in the family footsteps to Hong Kong. He decided to devote all his spare time to writing, apart from the time spent playing for the bank rugby and cricket teams. While he was still at Dulwich, he had already had an article published called Some Aspects of Game Captaincy, which won the prize in an essay competition in the Public School magazine. Now, the Public School magazine would become Woodhouse's regular source of literary income for the next two years. He had a stream of articles, columns and stories published there, both serious and humorous, all about public school life. But this was only part of his output. He had tried his hand at every type of popular writing, trying to get in general interest magazines, in newspapers. In 1901, he contracted mumps and had to spend three weeks recuperating with his family in Shropshire, during which he took the opportunity to write 19 short stories. In August 1901, his old housemaster at Dulwich, William Beach Thomas, who was now working as a journalist on a national newspaper called The Globe, started accepting Plum's work for The Globe, especially in the column By the Way, which appeared on the front page. Woodhouse would later get a job on the staff of the By the Way column, but at the time of writing The Pot Hunters, he was still a freelancer. Woodhouse said he was inspired to write The Pot Hunters by another public school novel, Frederick Swainson's Acton's Feud, which he thought had been a step forward in terms of depicting the reality of school as he knew it, and its emphasis on entertainment rather than moralising. The Pot Hunters was serialised in the public school magazine from January to March 1902, but only the first five chapters, at which point the magazine folded. The magazine's publishers, A&C Black, agreed to publish the story in book form, and it duly appeared on September the 18th, 1902. Did you understand when you read The Pot Hunters what was going on? I mean, were you familiar with the genre of the public school story or know what a public school was? Absolutely, because of my mum read all the British children classics to me 
when I was small. Mm. And she also had an experience at a similar school in Wales. So I did have some idea of what the reality could be like, mm. both socially and practically. And, and then again, I was bathed in this culture as having been something that I could not aspire to because I was born in Canada in a completely different culture to a family that didn't have a place there at all, but was presented as an ideal, something to aspire to. I grew up with Swallows and Amazons and all the Arthur Ransom novels. I grew up with the, uh, the Famous Five and the Secret Seven and the Treasure Seekers and all the Enid Blyton, all of that was just a constant as well. I mean, everything. Yeah, so I was just imbued with those sort of cultural values that were also presented as highly desirable, if unattainable for somebody who's in a different country and who is not just the daughter or the granddaughter of a very British classics professor who was trying to hang on to every scrap of place in society that he was unable to maintain, which was the entire reason why he was in Canada. My grandfather was not able to afford to get a first in classics at Cambridge, therefore could not get the teaching position he desired, therefore came to Canada in order to get a job and was installed as classics professor at the University of New Brunswick, where he made quite a strong impression on many generations. So I suppose it was passed down. But then also the child of immigrants from Russia, mm. who had an entirely different story. And then there's the fact that these stories are happening in a different age, very different, like generations away. And mm. it didn't exist in the same way. Uh, even when I was uh, young, it didn't exist in the same way anyway. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So did I know, did I understand, did I have uh, some context for these stories? Absolutely. And it really helps also not least having classics being important in our family and being introduced to the study of classics at a very young age. I also had a context for a lot of the references that are made. A lot of the characters refer to classic texts mm. and stories and authors, the ancient Greeks, they use Latin phrases. And I was able to know all of those and anything I didn't know, I was able to ask my mother about that. And we had, we had the books to back that up as well. So yeah, I did have a good context within which to place them. Now, one thing I wanted to bring up yeah. was one of the singular pleasures in this edition of The Pot Hunters, which includes, especially in the stories set at Beckford, is all the cricket, yeah. which is meticulously related. And actually, it's one of my favorite aspects of any book or any narrative when the author takes the time to get into the technicalities and the details and then those technicalities really do have a bearing on the plot i absolutely love it so one of the things i really enjoy is how central a number of cricket matches are to the plot of several of these stories and how we are provided with the details including scores specifically how the game is going, why the game is going that way, technicalities about each player, their strengths and weaknesses, and how that is affecting mm. um, the other characters, both emotionally and practically. How the, you know, Woodhouse prepares us well for how the winds 
and losses of the match are going to affect the characters we care about. And that makes you care about the game. And so even though I am not fully versed in the rules of cricket, I feel totally involved and I'm provided with more than enough information to enjoy the story and so that's something i particularly like in a novel and i find that he does that really well and then the pot hunters is a great example of that like let's get into the nitty-gritty details of what's happening here the language also in this very first book written when he was 21 or so is very recognizably woodhouse isn't it you can immediately tell you're reading woodhouse even though this is years before he became a famous writer for adults Mm-hmm. and wrote the books he's best known for today. Yeah, I, that's another thing I love, is to see that genesis, you know? Mm. And then you can compare it to how it's been uh, polished. Um, you can compare the sort of situations people get themselves into, that you know he's working with it to try to make it um, as interesting and amusing as possible. The Pot Hunters is in the genre of the public school story, and in England and Wales, a public school does not mean a school that is open to the public. It means a fee-paying school, and you could call them private schools, but I hesitate to call them that because that term also had a specialised meaning and it was usually applied to smaller schools, whereas the schools that earned the name of public schools were bigger and achieved a certain level of prestige. There were seven public schools named in the 1868 Public Schools Act. Charterhouse, Eton, Harrow, Rugby, Shrewsbury, Westminster and Winchester. And Dulwich College, Woodhouse's school, was less prestigious than these and attracted more middle-class than upper-class students. Woodhouse said that Bertie Worcester's parents wouldn't have sent him there, but Eucridge's parents might have done, because everyone there was going to earn their living, whereas at Eton a lot of the pupils could look forward to a life of leisure. And the heyday of these schools was in the late 19th century and the very start of the 20th. And that was when the middle classes saw the schools as a worthwhile use of their money to get the children to climb the social scale and get influential jobs, help govern the British Empire. When I was a kid in the 80s, there were still public school stories in the comics I read, like Winker Watson in the Dandy comic. And my dad, who'd been to Fetus, a private boarding school in Edinburgh, and didn't like it at all, looked askance at these public school stories and said they were old-fashioned and at the time I wondered why he said they were old-fashioned when such schools still exist but now I see what he means in that before all school stories seem to be public school stories because in the same way that popular fiction for grown-ups is full of lords and ladies because people are assumed to want to read about their their betters their social superiors I used to think that was just a P.G. Woodhouse thing to have Lord this and Lord that as the characters, but I started reading more widely that it's actually a very common trope. And also, the other reason he thought they were old-fashioned is that the heyday of the public schools was in the late Victorian Edwardian period when everyone seemed to aspire to send their sons there before the social upheavals following the world wars. But I think it's a great setting for a children's story because it puts a bunch of children together in the same place, away from parents and with only a certain amount of supervision. And then there's rules they can break and pranks they can play. It's actually acknowledged that being Mm. dropped off as a youth 
to a kind of a regimented, you kind of have to know you're dealing with new faces, you're away from home, you're, and you, you have a lot of social expectations that you're going to be able to handle yourself, especially as a new boy, because a lot of uh, rowdy, I would say there's a lot of rowdy physicality, shall we put it, that is described by the older boys as happening in the younger dormitories and study halls. And that one of the things that you really need is wit, cheek, and a good right hook. <laughs> right? You need to be able to stand your ground and actually be able to physically violence someone, or you're going to be in a bad way, maybe for years. Yeah, and uh, Whithouse himself could obviously take it. He thrived under these circumstances, but I'm sure a lot of other people didn't. Yeah, so I didn't go to any school like this. I went to a comprehensive, but it's all very familiar to me, as with you, from literature. Well, aspects are familiar, you know? It's like, do we really know? No, but I mean, we understand the language they use. We know that when they say beaks, they mean the teachers or the masters and That's so true. on. We know about uh, the fagging system and prefects. Charles Hamilton, who wrote the Greyfire stories, didn't even go to public school himself, but he just found out enough from reading other people's public school to get the general idea and spent his whole career churning them out. Sort of. Would you say that, I haven't read his work, would you say that he perpetuates the fantasy? Or would you say that uh, he provides a more realistic perspective? on public school experience. <laughs> the fact that um, we are talking about this when we haven't had any first-time knowledge is really funny. But anyway. <laughs> well, Woodhouse was praised at the time for his realism, and I do get a sense of realism from his public school stories that I don't get from Charles Hamilton, a.k.a. Frank Richards, which feels a step further into a fantasy world to me. You know, one of the great exports of English culture is the fantasy story of English culture. Mm. Getting into public school stories is similar to getting into a fantasy series because it might seem confusing at first, but once you've learnt the language, then you're set and you can read as many of them as you like. The Woodhouse expert John Dawson discovered that the title, The Pot Hunters, is actually a pun on a well-known phrase of the time. I quote, As it turns out, the word pot hunters was a derogatory term for more accomplished sporting fellows, in several cases cyclists who travel from town to town, their aim being to snag contest trophies from the locals who are not such talented competitors. Apart from the thief, nobody in the book is a pot hunter. No, they might be in it for the glory or the, the enjoyment of the competition, but not for the actual prize. Dedication the dedication is to Joan, Effie and Ernestine Bowes-Lyon, the children of family friends that Woodhouse had a special bond with and whom he used to entertain, and they were quite a bit younger than him. One of his last letters in 1975 was to Ernestine Ortini. So Woodhouse expected at least three female readers of the book. How would you describe the way Woodhouse portrays female characters in this specific work there is only one in the pot hunter specifically i can there's only one important female character that i can find and that is mrs macarthur who's uh, comes in right at the end you know as a female reader myself yeah. this is something that really stands out to me and always had 
Yeah, well, he he went to an all-boys school. He was writing about what he knew, and that was boys' schools. And he doesn't make any special effort to crowbar women in there. They pop up again when it's appropriate to the plot, like if someone's got a sister or if someone's outside of the school grounds, then there may be women or girls. So really, he made an assumption that his three female friends, whom um, he got along very well with and had an easy relationship with, Mm. um, would be interested in stories where they were not represented. You know, these days, it's all about representation, but there's a reason Mm. for that. And as a young female reader myself, again, what is really brought home again and again and again is how I absolutely do not belong. Mm. But I don't think that would have occurred to him at the time. One of his articles in the public school magazine, he mentions in the first paragraph that a a young female reader of his acquaintance has criticised his previous article and called him an ass. So they clearly were reading his work and enjoying it. In fact, I think there were quite a few letters in the public school magazine from female readers. Well, I suppose we had nothing else to read. Yeah, if, if girls' books aren't cutting it for you at the time, then you might, for want of anything better, have to read the boys' books. Now, the first chapter is called Patient Perseverance Produces Pugilistic Prodigies, which is Woodhouse plagiarising himself because he used that line already in an article. And this chapter also appears in an anthology called Vintage Woodhouse under the title Boxing Final. So it's probably one of the best-known chapters in all of his school stories. In it, Tony Graham of St Austin's is at Aldershot, From east and west, and north and south, from Dan even unto Beersheba, the representatives of the public schools had assembled to box, fence, and perform gymnastic prodigies for fame and silver medals. One of countless biblical references there. This was a real annual event that Woodhouse also wrote about as a journalist. Tony Graham discusses the boxing with his cousin Alan Thompson of rugby. So here Woodhouse is mixing up fictional and real schools because St Austin's is fictional but rugby is real. Graham and Thompson meet in the middleweight boxing final and Graham wins. There's a gym instructor featured whose speech Woodhouse has fun with dropping the H's and having him repeat the phrase the old thing. In these early stories there's a lot of making fun of the speech of the lower orders in an affectionate way. And Woodhouse used to go around London with a notebook writing down scraps of conversation for use, presumably, in bits of dialogue like this. Tony returns to St Austin's after the boxing tournament uh, with Welch, another athlete. And then Tony's fag, Robinson, tells them that he has seen a broken window in the pavilion where the school's trophies were temporarily being stored, the boardroom being used for a governor's meeting. And for those who are new to public school stories, a fag is a sort of servant that the older boys have. One of the younger boys does their bidding. It's very strange. Is it strange? I think it's strange. What's strange about it? What's not opportunistic about it? And is it instead strange? Well, if I went to a school, I wouldn't be best pleased to... I'd be, except that I would have to do what um, the adults told me, because 
they have a natural position of authority. But to be told that another boy gets to order me about according to his whims and wishes, and there would be no set hours to this job, it wouldn't be something you can clock on at and clock off at. It wouldn't be a nine-to-five job. It Hmm. seems like very unreasonable that uh, you can be tyrannized in this way. I don't think a lot of aspects of society at public school were intended to be reasonable. Um, I actually have a friend who went to Winchester and was made prefect. Yes, uh, made prefect for reasons of keeping order. And if you know it's described, if you just want to stick to this text, it is explained and described that here, here are four things. One, Mm. Um, the headmaster does not have time or want to keep order. Two, the head of house may or may not keep order. Three, prefects and head of house are expected to keep order. Even if they are terrible at doing so, Mm. nobody will step in to do it instead. Four, um, the FAG system is there partially to um, indoctrinate uh, the youth into this particular system, which is also there to train young men for the society they are going to enter is regarded. You have to, in the book itself, it said many times that if you can survive this, well, we don't, we don't, we don't spend mm. any comedic time on the losers except for poor Brown. He gets punched in the head. So the boys are expected to keep order. And it is also expressly said, I think in the, in the pot hunters that these boys are expected to manage their problems themselves. And you see that culture repeated again and again as the motivation for why these comedic situations occur. They are supposed to handle problems themselves unless they absolutely can't. And you wouldn't want to go to uh, the headmaster. You wouldn't want to go and rat on anyone. I mean, that would be social death. You have to handle it yourself. They are the prefects. I know that my, my friend at Winchester his duties as he came from Canada and so he had more (laughs) liberal views and his duties as prefect were explained to him quite baldly. He needed to use physical violence to keep these young men in line. And if you couldn't do that, that was a problem he would have to solve without any help from the staff. And this is our generation at one of the great public schools that we listed earlier. Uh, Tony later sees Jim Thompson. Jim is the brother of the person he beat at the boxing competition at Aldershot, Alan Thompson. And Jim had bet two pounds on Alan to win at the contest at Aldershot. And that was a lot of money back then. And Alan bet against himself to hedge another bet. And now he needs that money off Jim. Now, this is completely amazing to me that anyone is allowed to bet for or against themselves. And I guess technically he wasn't allowed. I guess all of this betting is illegal. But still, Jim desperately needs two pounds now to pay Alan. And his dad is very anti-betting, so he can't let him find out. Um, But he's hoping to get round this by winning lots of races at the school games because his father will pay him a pound for every race he wins, and he's already won the half mile, and he hopes to win the mile. The word starts to get out about the burglary of the trophies. 
in the pavilion. Turns out only two trophies were taken. It's my opinion, said Dallas, that Ward did it. A man of the vilest antecedents. He's capable of anything from burglary to attempted poisoning. You should see what we get to eat in Ward's house, said Vaughan. It's a little Arthur Conan Doyle reference there. Nicely uh, spotted. I didn't spot it, actually. It's on the uh, annotations that someone's helpfully put up online for this book. Note, this is currently at madamulily.org. Yes, I think it's particularly interesting in this story why certain things happen, because it's often a red herring. The Pot Hunters has a lot of characters, and it's quite confusing sometimes because there's so many characters, and you're not quite yeah. sure who's the main character. And there's lots of events, and some of these are crucial to the plot, and some of them are entirely incidental. And I do like that, but it's very different from his later work. In his later books, everything is tied in together. His plots are very tight and very well worked out, whereas this feels a bit more like improvised, a bit more like bits of short stories joined together. This chapter is called An Unimportant Byproduct, and he's talking about how Reed and Barrett fall out essentially over an indirect result of the burglary. But as far as I can remember, that doesn't turn out to be important later on. It's just no, a little bit of hu- it's a little bit of human interest. That little remark that hundreds of people all over the world are saying the same reply to the same question in the same tone of voice. So when you say that it's a bit of human interest, I agree with you. But also, there is a stronger reason why he included that. It's it's entertaining for the reader. Yes. It may not be useful for the plot, but it is useful for us who go to Woodhouse for Mm. a laugh and to be entertained. So I wouldn't say it's without use because the plot isn't necessarily the most important thing to the experience. No, well, it is the language for me in Woodhouse is always the most important thing. That's Um, exactly the point I'm trying to make. I agree with you. Unreservedly. But he did spend an awful lot of time on his plots. He was extremely anxious about them. He would go in agony trying to think of a new plot for a book. And once he thought of a plot, he would work it out, making sure there were no plot holes. He would draft it and draft it to get it right before he got to the stage where he could give us this wonderful language. So, yeah, he clearly felt that his plots were very important, even if the world doesn't agree with him. Or me, for example. (laughs) but i think in this first book he just seems a lot more relaxed about the plot and it's quite nice really it's quite nice not knowing what's going to lead to something else and what isn't i enjoy it one of the things i really enjoy about that style is that it gives me as the reader a sense of simply hanging around in that place it feels like all of this delightful language and Various happenings are are happening somewhere where, you know, you overhear something, you're involved in something, you, you're more of a part of it. And uh, it's sort of, there's a, it adds to this general atmosphere, which provides, again, that environment for the more, say, important or direct plot points to take place in. Yeah, I really like it. Actually, that's one of the things I particularly like about the Pot Hunters and why I do return to it. It's just to spend some time at St. Austin's. Well, I suppose that's one of the reasons he wrote it. He had a wonderful time at Dulwich and now he was 
in doing a job he hated and he wanted to return back to where he was happy and he based St. Austin's on Dulwich, apparently. So Ex- I have heard. Except he made it in the country rather than in the town, maybe because he also was fond of the country. Anyway, then we find out that Jim, on the night of the burglary, had broken into the pavilion himself because he'd left some important notes there he needed for an exam. And he heard a noise. Later, he realised that he interrupted the burglary. But he can't tell anyone about this because if they find out about that, he'll be in trouble and he'll lose his prefect's cap. Uh, Then we have a scene with Dallas and Vaughan who share a study with Plunkett, the head of their house. And there's a boy there called MacArthur who's a day boy. The narrator calls MacArthur a miserable day boy because the people who just come in for the days are sort of looked down upon by the people who actually board there. And uh, Woodhouse himself was a day boy originally. Then he was a boarder and then he went back to being a day boy. So he had both sides of this perspective. I think MacArthur in one of the short stories later does become a full boarder. And they're talking about Plunkett, who is the head of their house and they dislike him a lot. They're cooking sausages. There's a good line that the sausages have gone the way of all flesh, i.e. they've been eaten. And skipping ahead a bit, we get to the bit about bird nesting. Now, I misremembered this novel as being mainly about bird nesting. I thought, oh, that's the one that's all about bird nesting, because it was such a shock that this thing, which is obviously now highly illegal and highly frowned upon, was seen as a harmless pastime for boys. And there's this character called Barrett, who likes to go collecting eggs from birds' nests. In fact, it's only quite a small part of the book. To your unsophisticated amateur, a nest that is large may be anything. Rooks, magpies, pigeons, or great orcs. But Barrett is actually trespassing on Sir Alfred Venner's land. As a rule, the word was, keepers only, no others need apply. And he is surprised by some gamekeepers. And he hides in a hollow tree where he finds the stolen trophies. Whoa! But the groundskeeper chases him away and then he comes across Plunkett, the aforementioned head boy of Ward's house. He introduced him to your audience earlier, right? Yeah, he's the one that nobody likes. And but he oh, you were saying that the head boy has to keep order. And he's unpopular precisely because he doesn't keep order. He lets the younger children run riot. And is thus, but he he's often dis- seen disappearing, and nobody knows where he goes. Nobody knows what his dark secret is. Well, here it turns out his dark secret is he likes to trespass and smoke. He likes to go to Sir Alfred's Venner's grounds and have a good smoke. And now Barrett escapes, and Plunkett gets caught by the gamekeepers. Very <clears throat> satisfying moment, isn't it? Yes. What makes that moment so fun for the reader? Well, it was like you were saying earlier, you've um, been groomed to hate this guy. And then, yeah, he gets his comeuppance. Or he does later on, a little later. There's a new character here, the detective. Barrett uh, comes across this man. Uh, He's a detective who's been sent in to investigate the burglary. But Barrett doesn't tell him about the trophies because he thinks he's going to get in trouble if... He thinks it's about. Gotten in trouble? Do you think Barrett made the right decision? I think he made the wrong decision, and I think it's quite maddening to the to me as a reader. 
I just want him to tell the detective where the trophies are because I'm sure that the detective isn't interested in school affairs. He doesn't have any interest in disciplining children. He's quite capable of being discreet if he needs to or even thinking up some ruse of how he finds out independently that the trophies are there. It's absolutely... How could Barrett count on that? Yeah, well, he can't. Not only that, it's already stated that one of the most important aspects of being at school in this way and in this group of boys that they solve problems themselves so why would going to the authorities be desirable socially or practically how can he rely on thompson how does he know what thompson's going to do you may feel like you know as the reader roberts roberts yeah that's right thompson is a housemaster yeah i know that it's not a rational feeling I have. It's explained very well, actually, why Barrett doesn't do it. But emotionally, I feel like, oh, that's a shame. There's this opportunity fallen right into his lap to tell someone who's not connected with the school. It seems that maybe your urgency is related to the well-being of a fictional character who's quite resourceful, as opposed to the well-being of the reader to have a more entertaining story by introducing another source of conflict. You've got me. I think the thing with Roberts, the detective, is I immediately like him because he's quite witty. Yeah, he's funny. He's, he says this. Ah, keepers don't like trespassers. Curious thing. Don't know if it ever occurred to you. If there were no trespassers, there would be no need for keepers. To their interest, then, to encourage trespassers. But do they? Which is a fair point. <laughs> that is a funny joke. But, yeah, there's this plot point being set up where Barrett knows where the trophies are but he's unable to tell anyone. Barrett is um, imagining what would happen if he did tell anyone and he just sees himself being interrogated. Where was the hollow tree? In Sir Alfred Venner's woods. Did he know that Sir Alfred Venner's woods were out of bounds? Did he know that in consequence of complaints from Sir Alfred Venner, Sir Alfred Venner's woods were more out of bounds than any other out of bounds woods in the entire county that did not belong to Sir Alfred Venner. That's how out of bounds these woods are. That's pretty out of bounds. Meanwhile, a schoolmaster, Mr. Thompson, has taken an interest in doing a bit of amateur sleuthing, and he reckons that the cups were stolen by an amateur because the window has been broken very clumsily and he thinks only someone connected with the school could have known the trophies were there but there was also some money stolen from a coat in the room and some of the masters think this means that it's impossible that a pupil could have stolen it because there's this general assumption that this is code of honor they might steal the trophies for a laugh but they would not steal money they're incapable of dishonorable action my dear Maryvale, my entire form is capable of any crime except the theft of money. A boy might have taken the cups for a joke, or just for the excitement of the thing, meaning to return them in time for the sports. But the two pounds knocks that on the head. It must have been a professional. And then it's interesting, too, that in a later book, the Honourable Farney does steal money. In a prefect's uncle. Yeah, well, he basically disproves this theory that all uh, public schoolboys are honourable. I also note that the headmaster doesn't want to think of it this way, but in the end is forced to consider it, especially considering the misread letter. Yeah. Yes. And so even the headmaster within the Woodhouse universe does admit that it is quite possible, although he doesn't want to think it. Yeah, this is what they call in the story the circumstantial evidence. The teacher Thompson, with a P, 
opens by mistake a letter addressed to Jay Thompson without a P, which is Jim Thompson, the boy who needs money. And the letter is his brother telling him he needs this two pounds urgently. So the teacher, Thompson with a P, now knows that the pupil, Thompson without a P, is in desperate need of money. And so he becomes prime suspect. And now it's time for my favourite chapter in the book about the school's sports. Sports weather at St Austin's was as a rule a quaint but unpleasant solution of mud, hail and iced rain. These were taken as a matter of course and the school counted it as something gained when they were spared the usual cutting east wind. This year, however, occurred that invaluable exception which is so useful in proving rules. There was no gale, only a gentle breeze. The sun was positively shining and there was a general freshness in the air which would have made a cripple cast away his crutches and after backing himself heavily both ways enter for the stranger's hundred yards. And here a Charteris professes to quote a bit of Thucydides and does a line and a half of Latin hexameter which literally translates as a clear conscience will win out over lies but must not allow grief to exist and we must retrace our steps which is nonsense and it's a bit of Ovid, a bit of Virgil and a original bit and this is a spoof of the kind of Latin exercises that boys were supposed to construct in Latin classes the main part of the joke is that he attributes it to Thucydides who didn't write in Latin in the first place wrote in Greek. The band of the local police force, the military being unavailable owing to exigencies of distance, were seating themselves with the grim determination of those who know that they are going to play the soldiers' chorus out of Faust. The band at the sports have played the soldiers' chorus out of Faust every year for decades past and will in all probability play it for decades to come. At other intervals, present Austinians of tender years were manoeuvring half-companies of sisters, aunts and mothers, and trying, without much success, to pretend that they did not belong to them. A pretense which came down heavily when one of the aunts addressed them as Willie or Phil, and wanted to know audibly if that boy who had just passed, the one person in the school whom they happened to hate and despise, was their best friend. It was a little trying, too, to have to explain in the middle of a crowd that the reason why you were not running into that race the under-1300 by Jove, which ought to have been a gift to you only, etc., was because you had been ignominiously knocked out in the trial heats. There were no instances of the timid new boy, at whom previously the world had scoffed, walking away with the most important race of the day. That last bit, he's giving an example of what usually happens in these school stories, but he thinks it's a bit too obvious, so he's not going to do that on this occasion. After Jim is narrowly defeated in the mile race, Charteris, who is the editor of The Glowworm, an unofficial magazine, proposes publishing a special issue of The Glowworm about the burglary and the sports day to earn the money that Jim needs, and they propose to do it with a jellygraph machine, which I'd never heard of outside this book. No, we had one. Did you? As a super backup at uh, my elementary school, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know. It was totally archaic at the time. The teachers hated it. <laughs> and we get these handwritten tests sometimes. It's very funny. I guess when the copier was broken or something. To those who don't know, a jelly graph is a printing process that involves transfer of an original prepared with special inks to a pan of gelatin. After transfer of the image to the inked gelatin surface, copies are made by pressing paper against it. 
it's at this point after he's lost his race and doesn't get the pound from his dad that he's counting on that the headmaster grabs Jim and accuses him of the burglary. And then Sir Alfred Venner shows up. Ah, this is the bit you wanted to talk about. The local landowner, who's very grumpy and very anti-boys being on his land, comes to complain to the headmaster about Plunkett being on there and smoking. And the headmaster's had so many of these complaints before that he's quite defensive and he's trying to make it clear that he can't control all of his boys simultaneously, so it's not really his fault. One of my very favorite passages in The Pod Hunters is when Venner comes to complain to the headmaster. And yes. we hear the headmaster's thoughts on this. I think the reason that is so funny is because it provides a contrast. Previously, the headmaster is portrayed as someone that the boys need to respect who might not be an ally. It might not be a reasonable man who might be mm. an upholder of rules. But then to see how plagued he is by Venner and his attitudes and how he is much more interested in, let's just say, you know, the, the rules aren't the most important thing. He, he wants a quiet life. Yeah. <laughs> I find the funniest thing about that conversation is that the author gives us some insight into how the headmaster is feeling and his attitude and his plan. So we know what the headmaster is trying to do. He's trying to cut Venner down. He's trying to put him off. He's trying to get rid of him as well without having to do anything in terms of further disciplining the boys other than saying don't go there but he, of course he knows they're going to go there and he doesn't really mind it, because it doesn't matter mm. and yet Venner foils him so that's part of what I love about that scene is that again the author tells us the headmaster's attitude tells us the headmaster's plan and does that plan go right no despite the fact that we don't like Venner Venner bests him in this exchange by but producing course, this incontrovertible proof that uh, it was definitely a boy from St. Austin's and he was definitely smoking. And then the astonishment that it's the head of house, Plunkett. And I think that uh, seeing the headmaster's plan go wrong is, is the funniest part, especially because we don't like Venner. But then you, you hope, but then it sets you up with a hope. You want to keep reading because you want to see if he gets his own back. At least I did. So the headmaster has to expel Plunkett. We are delighted. We are delighted because we have been set up very well by characters that we like to think that that's extremely funny. Mm -hmm. um, I find that a lot of Woodhouse jokes have to do with comeuppance. Yes. Everyone gets what they deserve, whether yeah. it be good. Anyone who has done the right thing in the particular moral universe of Woodhouse um, generally comes out all right, even if they have to go through a period of suffering. And anyone who is dreadful, or is regarded as being, you know, beyond the pale, is brought low. And um, even the characters yeah, we yeah, yeah. like, like Bertie Worcester, he often receives his comeuppance for uh, belittling Jeeves or yeah. thinking he can do without Jeeves. His pride comes before a fall. And Plunkett goes and meets Dallas and Vaughan, who we mentioned earlier, don't like Plunkett, and refer to him as the mutual friend. And he tells them he's leaving, but he doesn't say why. He doesn't let them know he's been expelled. And when he's gone, Dallas and Vaughan speculate as to what he's going to do with himself. I wonder what the mutual's going to do. Gentleman of leisure, possibly. Unless he's going to the varsity. Same thing, rather. I quote that bit because I wonder if it reflects P.G. Woodhouse's opinion of university life. Is it just a way of doing nothing for three years? And is that what he thought he was missing by not getting into Oxford? 
as he plans. We know that you can have a variety of different experiences at university. You can study hard and get a degree in whatever discipline. But in Woodhouse world, the only time university is mentioned, it's mostly mentioned as being valuable for playing for the varsity cricket team. We never actually hear of anyone who derives actual academic value that they're going to use in their life or have an area of actual academic interest that they're pursuing at university or any other reason to go other than to have the social experience of being there and possibly playing sports to a certain level, which you can see that today is is a serious motivation for going to this university or that university when you have athletic talent. You want to go to the university with a great team and get better and then have a chance to make a career or perhaps end up as a gamekeeper uh, who plays cricket all summer in Scotland, which sounds absolutely ideal. I'm talking about Venables. In Le Fair Uncle John, a short story in Tales of St. Austin's. I don't, I don't detect any sour grapes there. Varsity seems to be, when you again, when you look at the actual context Anytime university is mentioned, it seems like a lark. It seems a lot of people went through uh, Oxford and Cambridge because, I mean, you wouldn't want to go anywhere else. It's, it's in alignment with the reason they're going to that school. They need to have it. They need to have their experience. They need to have that on their resume, as it were, that they've been there to schooling. Otherwise, you're not staying in your class. Mm. It's more important to stay in your class than maybe to, I mean, if you have an actual interest, then you might study hard, but mm. in, you don't have to, to get a lot of value of going there. Mm. I'm sure that's true today. Anyway, the next day there's a cross country race. Jim Thompson is tired from having run in the mile the day before. So he doesn't do very well in this cross country race. And um, Welch is in this race too. I love Welch. He's freaking hilarious. He's one of my favorites. The reason I bring I... him up now, actually, is that it's obliquely referred to a short story that he was in. At that time, Welch had not done much long-distance running. He confined himself to the hundred yards and the quarter, but he had it in him to do great things, as he proved in the following year when he won the half and would have beaten the great Mitchell Jones record for the mile, but for an accident, or rather an event, which prevented his running, the tale of which is told elsewhere. He's referring to a short story called Welch's Mile Record, which appeared in The Captain in November 1902. And in that story, Merivale, the housemaster, required Welch to run to fetch a doctor for his sick daughter. And hitherto, Welch had deeply resented his housemaster, but being asked to do him this great favour softened his heart and they got on much better afterwards. So it's quite a sentimental plot for Woodhouse, and maybe that's why he didn't include it in... Tales of St. Austin, because it's not in there. It was never collected in a book form, but you can read it online, as I did. Good to note. Again, this can be found at madamulily.org. So that's a bit more background about Welch that is external to this novel, but he does come in and out of the story. Uh, so what, were you th- what do you think about Welch? Well, first of all, he's one of the first characters I really latch on to. He's the first person that is told about the burglary. So because he's one of the first people who's sketched out for me, I have a bit more of an interest already. I like his personality. I find Welch to be a pretty level-headed fellow and very concerned with his long-distance running performance. 
I appreciate the way Woodhouse describes his own attitude towards preparing for these various runs. And I love the story of the consequence of giving it all in one run and then really not being able to manage in the cross country. I suppose you could say that I like the way Welch expresses himself. And that's huge, hugely what I read Woodhouse for is how the characters express themselves and how they speak to each other. And I like the way Welch is not directly involved in some ways in the theft or recovery of the school trophies, but his own drama around preparing for the races that he's entered into provide a really nice context for those other major plot points. A genial chap. Let's see here. I do love this book. Oh yeah, and of course he's the he's the roommate of Charteris. So captain of cricket, best all-round man on the team, best wing three quarter of the school possessed, played fives and rackets like a professor, and only the day before had shared Tony's glory by winning the silver medal for fencing at Aldershot. So you know that he's a very high status member mm. of the school. Quite an all rounder. Mm-hmm. When it comes to sports anyway. Quite like Woodhouse himself. Uh, Charteris is my favourite character. Naturally. But, Tell me about why you like Charteris. Well, he is the witty one and the one who's always dropping these references to the Bible or Gilbert and Sullivan or Shakespeare and mangling them. And How sweet the moonlight sleeps on yonder haystack. Thompson on the Grampian Hills. And just has something funny to say on every subject and there's always one character like this in all of the school stories but Chartres is the first one and he has a life outside of the novel he appears in short stories as well and he's quite he's... musical as well isn't he oh yeah he plays the the banjo doesn't he mm-hmm. um there's an author and he saves our he saves our hero by raising doing all the yeah work. yeah he's quite resourceful and generous There's an author called Norman Murphy who has argued that he is a self-portrait of Woodhouse, an idealised self-portrait, because Woodhouse also edited the school magazine. But I'm not sure about that, because people said Woodhouse wasn't that witty in person. He saved all his wit for his work, and he actually found it quite aggravating when people expected him to be witty and funny in person. So Don't we all? Maybe it's more, Chartres is more like the person he would like to be in conversation. Are you saying that we might be disappointed if we were able to invite Woodhouse to join in on this podcast with the hope that he would provide wit on the spot, as it were? I think he would try to get out of it. And if he did accept, he would have worried about it for two days and and complained that it made he couldn't do any writing because he was too distracted by worrying about what he was going to say in the interview. (laughs) He didn't like socialising. He didn't like having to be a public figure. He just wanted to be let, he wanted his wife to take care of the the social business and let him get on with going to his room and writing another few hundred words on the typewriter. At least in later life. What actually happens in this um, this cross-country race is that Jim drops out out of tiredness and uh, runs into MacArthur, the day boy, Mm -hmm. and uh, he goes with MacArthur to MacArthur's family house, which is nearby. Meanwhile, the detective has solved the case, just like that, comes and tells the headmaster who done it, 
and um, turns out it was a local poacher and he came across this guy in the pub. He seemed to have more money than such a type of person ought to have and he finds out from this, finds out where the uh, trophies are because the, the criminal confesses and says where he's put them. So all of that stuff about Barrett knowing where the um, trophies are is now, it's fine. He doesn't have to tell anyone because the detective has sorted it all out independently. It almost feels a bit of an anticlimax to me, but I quite like it. I mean, this isn't a traditional whodunit. It's not a traditional detective story where the Hercule Poirot gathers everyone together at the end for the big reveal. It's almost just thrown away as a side issue. The professional detective, who knows what he's doing, gets the job done, and that's it. And and that's that part of their plot wrapped up. Ted Master is extremely guilty at having accused Jim Thompson for a crime he didn't commit, and now it's revealed that Jim Thompson hasn't come in and he's missing and nobody knows where he is and the headmaster immediately thinks oh no he's run away because he's been falsely accused and Woodhouse fans might like to know there is a bit here about butlers Parker made no comment he stood in the doorway trying to look as like a piece of furniture as possible which is the duty of a good butler and so the next big drama in the book is all the boys in the school being sent up to search the area for the missing boy We'll proceed to search for Thompson if he be above the ground. It will be a difficult business, said Merivale, refraining, to his credit be it said, from a mention of needles and haystacks. Woodhouse is so careful about crafting beautiful sentences and saying everything the best way he can that he hates clichés. And several points in this book he points out clichés he could have used or his characters could have used, but they didn't, and he's proud of them. Yes, good. Don't mention needles and haystacks. And then they find Jim. Babe came on the scene, wearing a singularly prosperous expression as if he had dined well. Hello, you chaps, he said. Sir to you, said Chartres. Look here, babe, we want to know what you have done with Jim. He was seen by competent witnesses to go off with you, and he's not come back. If you've murdered him, you might let us have the body. Because he fell into a quarry after leaving the MacArthur's house. And so he needs to recuperate. So they take him to the MacArthur's house to recuperate. And this is where we have the female character I mentioned. Two of them, in fact. Yes, two. But Mrs. MacArthur made more of an impression on me because she's a good character. She's very keen to protect Jim from any aggravation. And she's Mm -hmm. very protective of him because the headmaster really wants to have an interview with him to tell him that he's absolved of suspicion but their family won't let him get in there the fact was that the babe a very monument of resource on occasions had as he told jim given them the tip not to let the old man get at him unless he absolutely chucked them out you know and so he has to sort of tell him in front of them eventually and the final issue is that jim still doesn't have the money he needs so this special issue of the glow worm has to happen and they have to and because he's not there to write anything for the issue, all of them have to do it themselves. And they have to disguise their handwriting because they want to be anonymous. And it takes them all night and it sounds a right arduous job. But it works. It's a great success. Everyone wants this special issue of the magazine and the money is raised. And the head's first act on getting the cups back is to send for Welch, to whom by right of conquest they belonged. And we end with a quote from Ambrose Bierce. 
passes through the realm of the merely impudent and soars into the boundless empyrean of pure cheek. Another wonderful line. Because the public school magazine folded on the serial publication, there was a slightly different ending in that version. It, it ends quickly with a letter that Jim Thompson writes to his brother where he summarises what was going to happen in the plot, but there's no mention of him falling down and hurting himself or anything like that. It's a simplified version, but uh, that's available online to read if anyone's interested. At madameulily.org And that's that. And obviously I've got quite a lot of these still to do, 99 of them or so, so... There'll be plenty. 99? Well, that's about how many books he wrote. So if I spend one episode per book, that's how long it'll take. So anything I've forgotten to say today, I will have an opportunity to say later. Thank you so much for all your time and insight. Some time ago, I was passing a shop and my eye was attracted by a halfpenny paper with a school story on the front page. I read it eagerly till a policeman advised me to move on. One of the incidents was a fight with pistols in a form room. When I got to this, I took the constable's advice, thanked him for it, and told him I wished he had spoken sooner. The whole affair filled me with a vague, sad wonder as to what the author's idea of a public school really was. I noticed that he was described as the writer of The Boys of Babingley, The Lads of Loringford, The Youths of Yorkville, etc. It was that etc. that troubled me. How many more of this type of story had he written? And did his heroes fight with pistols in all of them? I wondered which of the public schools he had been to. It was probably not Eton, Winchester or Harrow. I'm almost certain they do not do that sort of thing there. Perhaps he left early. P.G. Woodhouse in The Improbabilities of Fiction, Public School Magazine, November 1901.